Good morning. Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin class of prayer this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we ask that your spirit will join us to enlighten our minds, fill our hearts with your presence, that we can know that uh, we have experienced your love and truth in our minds and hearts, that we will become like you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. A couple of announcements, uh, just to bring you up to date on the Journal of the Watcher. Uh, as you all know, it is available in the Android uh, version uh, since October 1. We've had uh, real struggles with um, Apple. They rejected the app, uh, so we've gone with the iBook direction, and they have required that we actually create a new account, which is a seven-day process. We submitted for the new account on Monday last week, and they so seven days, hopefully Monday this week, we'll have the new account open, and then we get to submit the book and, and they, used, they said usually, 95% of the cases, the, it'll be approved in the store within 24 hours. And uh, so we're hoping by midweek next week it'll be available. So today we're doing lesson number nine in the quarterly book of James. And the title is, the, is One Lawgiver and Judge. And when you hear the title, One Lawgiver and Judge, what comes to mind? What mental images come forward? A room like this one. There we go. Yes, we are in the courtroom here today. Yes, fear. Does the title lend itself towards presenting God in that role of a dictator type view versus a designer view? The title. It kind of does to me too. Um, And do you think it's important how we view God's law? Yes. Yeah. Now, just to give you a historical context about how our church thought of these things when it was founded, this is uh, from the 19th century out of a book called The Great Controversy, 582. It says, In seeking to cast contempt upon the divine statutes, Satan has, has perverted the doctrines of the Bible, and error have thus become incorporated into the faith of thousands who profess to believe the scriptures. The last great conflict between truth and error is but the final struggle of the long-standing controversy concerning the law of God. Upon this battle we are now entering, a battle between the laws of men and the precepts of Jehovah, between the religion of the Bible and religion of fable and tradition. So what do you hear? What do you hear being said there? Because before we can understand what the Bible means about lawgiver and judge, we really have to understand something about what God's law is. What is his law? I'd say most of the time, in this lesson and every time we hear it, the law is equated with the Ten Commandments. It's mostly equated with the Ten Commandments. I think that's fair to say. Uh, is that true just in, in this church, or do a lot of churches think of God's law, think Ten Commandments? Yeah, most, most places. Yeah, Okay. Well, listen to this again. This is uh, from the 19th century. Out of a, first one's out of a book called Patriarchs and Prophets. It says, From the opening of the Great Controversy has been Satan's purpose to misrepresent God's character and to excite rebellion against his law. In the second signs of the times, January 20, 1890, it says, God was represented as severe, exacting, revengeful. This is by Satan. Satan represents God as severe, exacting, revengeful, and arbitrary. He was pictured as one who could take the pleasure and suffering of his creatures. There are attributes that belong to the character of Satan, the evil one representatives belonging to the character of God. Now, I want you to think, how does that, didn't say anything about law in there. Does that passage, does that quotation, does that idea have anything to do with law? He was represented as severe, exacting, revengeful, and arbitrary. What does arbitrary mean? That is a whim. You know, just picks up something and says, this is the way it is. Exactly. It's a whim. It's, uh, it's, uh, no it, inherent consequence. No inherent consequence. That's exactly right. With, without a, a specific reason, because a person in power says it's going to be this way. Um, what kind of law operates without inherent consequence? Inherent consequence means consequences are built in. Impose law. Man's law. Exactly right. See, God is the creator. He's the builder of the fabric of the universe. And his laws are the protocols upon which the fabric of reality is actually constructed to operate. Created beings cannot create reality. Created beings like us, and including Lucifer, a created being, cannot build the fabric of the cosmos. We're not creators. Therefore, what we can make is we can make up rules. And our laws are imposed list of rules that require some external authority like our government, to police breaches in the rules and then enforce punishments for those breaches. This idea, one of the ideas that has infected the world, and it has affected the world, not just this church, not just Christianity, the world, is that God is no different than a Roman dictator who inflicts rules other than he's more powerful. That's this idea that has that is, infected us 
This is what I believe is the, the basic attack on God's law. And so from Scripture, if you go into the Scripture, what does it say God's law is in Scripture? Over and over and over again. So I'll just throw some at you real quick. Romans 13.10, Therefore love, is, uh, love does no harm to its neighbor, therefore love is fulfillment of the law. Galatians 5.14, The entire law, summed up in a single command, love your neighbor as yourself. James 2.8, If you keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. Jesus said all law hangs upon love to God and love to fellow man. And this one, I want you to think about this one. Proverbs 12.28, In the way of righteousness there is life. In the way of righteousness, there is life. How do, you, how do you understand that? Under the imposed law model, it's, well, if you do what's right, then God uses his power to grant you life. It's, a, it's, it's something he gives you. Because you're doing what's right. It's a reward, so to speak, for doing the right thing. But in the way of righteousness, there is life, is what it says. What does righteousness mean? Doing the right thing. And so what, what is the right thing to do? Follow God's design. Oh, now, you see, I love the word you use there. If you walk in the way that he designed us to go, you're going to be good. So operating in harmony with how he's designed things to operate, because he's built things to operate in a certain way, and that's how life is constructed. So in the way of the right, in the way of the construction, in the way of the designer, there's life there. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. Um, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul reviving remember the example we've given in here if you decide to break the law of respiration and put a plastic bag over your head and instead of giving your carbon dioxide to the plant you hoard it selfishly to yourself now you're out of harmony you're a lawbreaker you're transgressing the law and the wages of that is but in the progression there's first lightheadedness dizziness tingling in your fingers and so forth you might get confused you might hallucinate you might pass out before death comes anywhere along that trajectory if somebody just removes the bag and puts you in harmony with the law, what do you do? Revive. You revive. The law of the Lord is perfect. It revives. It brings life. This is how God has actually built things to operate. Here's some quotes, again, out of the 19th century, uh, what our church used to teach about these things because it's not really commonly taught this way anymore. Christ Object Lessons 258. In living for self, see, self, put the plastic bag over our head, selfishly hoard our carbon dioxide. This is, this is doing everything for self, you see. In living for self, he has rejected that divine love which would have flowed out in mercy to his fellow men. Thus he has rejected life. For God is love and love is life. Isn't that nicely said? Or Great Controversy 493. Our only definition of sin is that given in the word of God. It is transgression of the law. It is the outworking of a principle at war with the great law of love which is the foundation of the divine government. See, it's not a breaking of a rule. It's working as a principle, a motive, a method that is opposite the design of love, which is the foundation of God's government. Uh, The law of love being the foundation of the government of God, the happiness of all created beings depends upon perfect accord. Well, here's one. It says, The law of God from its very nature is unchangeable. It is a revelation of the will and character of God, of of the author. God is love, and his law is love. It's two great principles, love to God and love to man. Such law being an expression of the mind and will of God must be as enduring as its author. I'll read one more. This is out of Signs of the Time, April 15, 1886. As the supreme ruler of the universe, God has ordained laws for the government, not only of all living beings, but but of all operations of nature. Everything, whether great or small, animate or inanimate, is under fixed laws, which cannot be disregarded. There are no exceptions to this rule, for nothing that the divine hand has made has been forgotten by the divine mind. But while everything in nature is governed by natural law, man alone, as an intelligent being, capable of understanding its requirement, is capable of understanding its requirements and is amenable to moral law. To man alone, the crowning work of his creation, God has given a conscience to realize the sacred claims of the divine law, and a heart capable of loving it as holy, just, and good. And of man, prompt and perfect obedience is required. Why? Oh, and it says, yet God does not compel him to obey. He has left a free moral agent. Why does God not compel him? Let's look at that. Why does God not say, love me or I will kill you? Love me or if you don't, I'll be forced by holiness and justice to inflict pain and suffering upon you. Uh, In some versions, as long as you deserve till I kill you. In other versions, for all eternity. 
What, what, what happens if you say that to somebody? Love dies. And fear grows. <laughs> Notice, you cannot get love under coercion. It can't, can't, it's not possible. It breaks the design law. It breaks how God has actually constructed relationships to work. So God is not saying, love me or I'll kill you. He's saying, love is how I've built life to operate. And if you choose to deviate from that design, which you're free to do, you will suffer and you will die because this is not how life is built. And there is no life out there separate from me. There's only death out there. And maybe he used the example of the love between a husband and wife, where he created that. So when they came together in love, life happened. Exactly. Beautiful. Yeah, giving of themselves in love and life happens. So I'm really trying to get in your minds, hammering home this point, so you have a real clarity of the distinction between God's design law upon which life is built to operate and this lie that Satan has told and has infected the minds of created beings all over the planet of God's law is a system of rules. And if you break rules, then justice requires. What does justice require if you break the rules? Yet you be punished. Listen to this, Desire of Ages 761. In the opening of the great controversy, Satan declared that the law of God could not be obeyed, that justice was inconsistent with mercy, and that should the law be broken, it would be impossible for the sinner to be pardoned. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. This is what our church used to teach, that Satan was the originator of this idea that God, in order to be just, must punish sin. Do you understand how much our, our views have changed in the last 150 years? That this has been turned on its head, and there are people in our church teaching that God, in order to be just, must punish sin. This very thing. I've confronted them, and, and they say, well, in this case, Satan wasn't lying. He was telling the truth. Truly, they defend it. Notice Satan's argument, though, presents, represents what kind of law? Imposed. A law that has no consequence. That's why you have to punish. Exactly. This is misrepresenting God's law. It's an attack on, therefore, God's nature as well. So if God's law is the design law, and not a list of rules that's imposed upon us, then why the Ten Commandments and the ceremonial law of the Old Testament? Why did he give the Ten Commandments? If, if the law is actually a design law, why do it? Yes? I remember hearing my girlfriend say that I know it's right for me to love this other man that I'm not married to because it feels that it's better, and so I know that God must approve this. And what the Ten Commandments do is they, they define love for us. So that we know what love is, we can recognize it. Okay, so you're so we can recognize. So you're t- telling us that it is a diagnostic instrument. Mm-hmm. Help us understand and 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 expose in our own minds the difference between what living in harmony looks like and being out of harmony looks like. Paul you might not know. Paul in Galatians chapter three asked the question, starting in verse nineteen. What then is the purpose of the law? And you know what his answer is? It was added. The Ten Commandments were added because of transgression until Christ comes, who's the promise is, is referred to. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. The mediator, however, is not a representative of just one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promise of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the scriptures declare that the whole world is a prisoner of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under its supervision. I'm going to read from my paraphrase in a second, but go ahead. I like what she said about otherwise we might not know. Because how many examples, especially you and your profession, but how many examples do we read about every day where people are professing love in some sick, degrading, destructive ways, but they profess it as love because it feels right to them. God had to give us some way of recognizing and to grow out of a perversion of what love is. That's a good point. And James chapter 1 says, No one should say God tempts because God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Each one of us are tempted when we're drug away and enticed by our own evil desires or feelings. That's right. So this idea that feelings, and, and, and then, of course, Jeremiah 17, the human mind or heart is deceitful above all things and utterly wicked. Who can know it? That we and of ourselves alone, we need help. How many 
healthcare practitioners, myself included, have patients that come and when you teach them something that they're doing, they're eating this food, they're drinking this, they're doing that, and they had no idea it was harmful. No, why, why didn't somebody tell us this? I didn't know this. Now, we're not talking tobacco and alcohol. That's obvious. People know that. We're talking some of the other things that they might be doing in their life that they didn't know. Nobody's ever told us. How come? This is why we have, as you're saying, we have to tell people some of these things because they don't know. So for my paraphrase, Galatians 3.19 uh, through 25. If God, if God promised to heal us, then what was the purpose of the law? It was added because of our sin-sick state, our darkened minds, and the rapid rate at which we were destroying ourselves in order to diagnose our condition and teach us a healthier way to live until the only true cure, Jesus, the promised one, had come. God communicated this law through angels and then through Moses as an intermediary to the people. But an intermediary is not needed when there is only one party involved, and God and his son are one. In the, in the written law, <clears throat> it, excuse me, is the written law then somehow in opposition to the promise of God? Of course not. The written law was simply a tool to diagnose our sickness and lead us to God for healing. If the written law could somehow cure the infection of selfishness and promote life, then healing would certainly have followed the giving of the law. But scripture is clear. All humanity is infected with selfishness, and is imprisoned by, their, by this terminal condition. It is by trust that we experience the only cure, the one promised, Jesus Christ, who was given to humankind as the remedy to this terminal condition. Before Christ came, we were quarantined by the written law, restrained from continual self-destruction until Christ procured the only true cure. So then, the written law was provided as a safeguard to protect us and lead us to Christ, the great physician, so that we might be restored to unity with God by trust in and partaking of Christ. Now that trust in God has been restored and we are set right in heart, mind, and character, and again practice God's methods, we no longer need the law to diagnose our condition and lead us back to God. Yes, thoughts? That falls right in harmony with two chapters forward. Paul writes on uh, chapter 5 where he says, you know, the fruits of the Spirit, which represent the healing process. And at the end of it, how's he ended? He says, against such there is no law. Exactly. And those who live according to the carnal nature from that nature reap destruction. Notice. And those who live according to the Spirit from that nature reap eternal life. You see? So this is design law stuff, how God built things. We are out of harmony because of what Adam did, born in sin, conceived in iniquity, and God through Christ is working to restore the creation back into unity of his design to write the law where? In the hearts and minds. Exactly right. So with this clarity in mind, basically the, the, contra, the contrast between these two ways of viewing law, now we can actually look into the lesson. <laughs> and the lesson starts um, with James 4.12. And it says... And I'm going to actually read 11 and 12. It says, Brothers, this is out of the NIV. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are, who are you to judge your neighbor? What do you think that means? How do you hear it? Remember, every, every Bible translation that has been done, that I know of, other than my New Testament paraphrase, which will be out soon, um, is done through the lens of imposed law. Constantine converted. After Constantine convert, converted, the church accepted this idea that God's law is like Rome's law. It's a set of rules put over. And the, and the Roman lawyers came in. And this is what led immediately into the Dark Age. Look at the New Testament church and how they practice. Look at 300 AD, Constantine converts. And then the, and this idea of God's law becomes an imposition of rules. The church then takes control of the state. The state and the church must impose enforcement of these rules. And if you don't keep the rules, you get all these punishments coming. And then what happens? The world sinks into a Dark Age. And every Bible translation that has been done has been done through good-hearted, well-meaning people who have this lens that God's law is a list of rules he must enforce. And this is why it reads this way. Here's my paraphrase. Brothers and sisters, don't badmouth each other. When you, demean, when you demean one another, you distort God's law of love and make God's methods appear questionable. When you misrepresent God's law of love, you are no longer living in harmony with it, but acting as if you have a better design for life than God. There's only one designer of life and one diagnostician who is able to heal our terminal condition. 
So who do you think you are to diagnose your neighbor as beyond healing? Yes. And furthermore, people tend to project, see everything they see through their own thoughts and uh, practices so that people generally tend to notice the thing that's a problem in themselves, but they can't see it here, but they sure do see it there. That's right. That's right. There's no question. I see that all the time. See the other comments? Does viewing God's law as design laws we're promoting versus an imposed of rules that he must enforce, does viewing it as design law weaken the law? No. No. I want you to get your mind around because one of the allegations come, oh, you're weakening the law. If you're, if you're taking God out of his role of cosmic enforcer, cosmic policeman in the sky, po- cosmic executioner, then you're weakening the law. Well, no way. You see, design law, there are no loopholes. It is unbiased, unprejudiced. There's no difference regarding race, gender, creed, color. If a rich man and poor man both jump off a building, will gravity make a difference between them? No. If a black woman and a white woman both tie a plastic bag over their head, does the law of respiration differentiate between them? If a Christian and a Jew cheat on their spouse, will the law of love treat them differently? If a Christian or a non-Christian harbor resentment, selfishness, bitterness in their heart, will the result of character, will the result and impact of that on their hearts and minds be different? What if the Christian who harbors resentment, bitterness, and anger in their heart also goes to church and does rituals, goes to confession, does communion, has their feet washed, and so forth and so on, but they continue to harbor selfishness and resentment and bitterness in their heart? Will their rituals change the outcome? No. Do you understand how much of Christianity is built on a lie? Hey, I can do all this evil as long as I go to confession and confess it. If I get, get the proper rituals, do the proper things, or do the heavenly legalism. What's heavenly legalism? Yes, get something erased out of my record in heaven. I confess it, ask the blood of Jesus to be applied to my record book, and get that deed erased out of the record. Doesn't change my heart. I'm still selfish and want to do it again next week, but at least that deed's erased out of the record. See a problem with this? When we have a law that is arbitrary instead of imposed rules, when we view it this way, then the church, then religious organizations can create all kinds of loopholes. That we can do anything bad and we can still be saved. This is in the dark ages it got so bad they did things called indulgences. In indulgence, you could go to your priest and say, you know what, my neighbor's wife's really hot and I want to murder my neighbor and rape her. Well, that's quite a serious sin. You know, that, That's a mortal sin. For a mortal sin, that's going to be 5,000 gold pieces. You pay me 5,000, then you can do that and it won't be held against you and you can still go to heaven. This is how it was. Not only can they do that, but I would argue because of the nature of the disease, they can't help but doing that. The selfishness that says, wait a minute, we've got to make it so brother so-and-so, who's got a lot of money to give so we can build this new facility, if he does that, we better find a way that it's okay to keep him in the fold. You think we're doing... You think character says, you're sick, let me heal you. Exactly. Your heart needs healing. Exactly. Do you think that we struggle? Now, these indulgences we look back at and we go, oh, that's crazy. How, do you think we do this today? Yes. Yes. Do you think people with money get advantages in the church? Yes. <laughs> get on boards, not because they're qualified, but because they're going to make a big donation? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You think the trajectory and the ministry of the churches are changed by this type of stuff? This is from Review and Herald, September 21, 1886. The gospel of the New Testament is not the Old Testament standard lowered to meet the sinner and save him in his sins. God requires of all his subjects obedience, entire obedience to all his commandments. He demands now, as ever, perfect righteousness. And as the only, as the only title to heaven... Christ is our hope and our refuge. His righteousness is imputed only to the obedient. Let us accept it there, uh, through faith that the Father shall find in us no sin. Did that warm your heart? Hopefully so, if you understood it. But the language used, the way it's stated, it could be very easily misunderstood. And many do. Let's look at this first. If you have that, if you come to the passage with your mind covered up with the imposed law lens, 
and you believe God's law is like a system of rules, then when you hear this, this actually causes a lot of false guilt, false fear, false security, and false insecurity. Both. How? By suggesting that perfect performance in our behavior is required. Perfect obedience to the law. We have to do everything, every deed, every act, every thought has to be perfect in everything we do. And that and, that, and simultaneously, that we are under this imposed model, we are incapable of doing that. And therefore, since we are incapable of doing that, we have to have a substitute to do it for us. And that substitute comes down and does it for us. And then we can claim his life in place of ours. And imputed righteousness then means that his record is projected into our record in heaven. And when the courtrooms of heaven sit and God makes a judgment against our wickedness and our, uh, he doesn't see us. He sees only the perfect imputed record of his son who never made any mistake. This would be like going to the doctor, terribly sick, fever, nausea, vomiting, losing weight. You feel masses, some type of tumors inside you. And when the doctor comes in to examine you, you stick your healthy brother in front of you and say, examine him in my place and whatever you find, put it in my record. How's that going to work for you? Now you've got a record that says, hey, there's no disease here, but you're still sick and dying. This is the lie of an imposed law system. It leaves Christians powerless. It leaves them in a false security where they don't actually live victoriously as, as Christ designed. And that's why if you look at the statistics, Christian homes versus non-Christian homes, same rate of alcoholism, same rate of drug addiction, same rate of spouse abuse, same rate of child abuse, same rate of pornography, same rate of divorce, same rate of teen pregnancy. Everything's the same in the Christian home versus the non-Christian home. How can that be? Paul says because they have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. Because they've accepted a lie about God's law. It's a system of rules to be kept. And what I need is I need to get my sins pardoned. I need to get legal forgiveness. But that's not what the New Testament teaches. The New Testament teaches, let's his mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. We must be reborn. We must be recreated in the inner man. The law must be written on the heart and mind. We must have the heart of stone removed, the heart of flesh put in. We must have the circumcision of the heart by the spirit. We must be regenerated. The old man must die and the new must come to life. It's, it's actually a transformational process that God wants to take everything Christ has achieved and reproduce it in each one of us. Imputed righteousness is often synonymous in in theological circles with justification by faith. Those two things saying differently, but they basically mean the same thing. Those of the legal view think this is when, and and I've had talks with various theologians of different um, um, denominational groups, and those who hold that imposed law view say that what this means is that when you accept Jesus as your Savior, God declares you righteous even though you're not based on the imputed righteousness of Jesus, which is accounted to your record. So I said to them, this con- one particular conversation group, about six theologians and me, so I said, so you're saying God is, is looking at my record, sees the imputed righteousness of Jesus. I'm still sinful and wicked, but he's going to declare that I'm now righteous. They said, yes. I said, so God's lying. He's declaring something to be true that's not true. I'm not righteous, but he's declaring it so. They didn't like that at all. I'm going to tell you it's fiction. This is all fiction. What I'm telling you over here, this legal, this legal solution is fiction. It's based on the false view of God's law. Ah, okay. So what, what, the, what comes first? Uh, Romans chapter 4. Abraham believed God and he was recognized, depending which view, which translation, recognized, accounted, declared, seen to be, understood by God to be righteous. Depending on which, which translation, that word uh, accounted. And what that word actually means is, if you account that you have or declare or consider that you have $50 in your checking account, it's because you actually have $50 in your checking account. You can't account it to be there if it's not there. That's what that word means. And so when God looked at Abraham, who trusted God and recognized or accounted him as righteous, it because he was. So what does it mean? What is, according to the Bible, the natural state after Adam, after Adam's sin, what's the natural state of the human heart in relation to God? Enmity, that Romans says. Our our heart is against him. We don't trust him naturally. 
So when Abraham trusted God, there was a, that was an evidence of a change of heart. Abraham's heart went from distrust to trust. Thus, Abraham's heart was now set right. That's justified. Justified. When you justify the margins on your, on your Word document, you've taken those things that are out of harmony and you've set them right. You put them in line. So Abraham's heart that was distrusting God is now set right with God again. Now, he has a lot of cleanup work to do, but he is in right relationship. His heart attitude is now correct with God. That's what justified means, having a heart that now trusts God. So, this idea of imputed righteousness is often thought to be some legal application in record books somewhere else by God in heaven, rather than something that happens inside of you and me. This is not how our church used to teach it. Let me share some quotations again from the 19th century and how we used to look at this. And notice what these say. They're quite profound. This is out of God's Amazing Grace 181. It says, Abundant grace has been, has been provided that the believing soul may be kept free from sin. For all heaven, with its limitless resources, has been placed at our command. Have you ever thought about that? All heaven, with its limitless resources, are available for you to help deliver you from living under the bondage of a sinful life. We are to draw from the well of salvation. In ourselves, we are sinners, but in Christ, we are righteous. Having, listen to these words, made us righteous. Through the imputed righteousness of Christ, he pronounces us just and treats us as just. He looks upon us as his dear children. Does made us righteous and declare us righteous sound like the same thing to you? No, this isn't a declaration. This is a transformation. This is something that's happening inside us. Here's another one. God's amazing grace, page 96. But we all with open face behold as in a glass the glory of the Lord. This is quoting 2 Corinthians uh, 3.18. The glory of the Lord are changed in the same image from the glory to glory, even as the Spirit of the Lord. Beholding Christ means studying his life as given in his word. We are to dig for truth as for hidden treasure. We are to fix our eyes upon Christ. When we take him as our personal Savior, this gives us boldness to approach the throne of grace. By beholding, we become changed, morally assimilated to the one who is perfect in character. By receiving his imputed righteousness... Through the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, we become like him. Do you hear what's happening? By receiving the imputed righteousness of Christ, God declares you are legally now set right. No, it's not what we used to teach. The imputed righteousness is part of partaking of Jesus with the transforming power of the Holy Spirit that's changing our motives and our desires to be like him in character. So what did Paul say? It is no longer I that live, but... Christ lives. No, it's no longer I that stand legally before the judgment seat of God, but Christ's record stands in my place. That's not what he said. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. Here's one, our high calling, page 364. We aim too low. Yes, we do. Because what do we aim for? We aim for legal pardon in in a forensic justice system. The mark is much higher. Our minds need expansion that we may comprehend the significance of the provision of God. We are to reflect the highest attributes of the character of God. The law of God is the exalted standard to which we are to attain through the imputed righteousness of Christ. Attain. What does attain mean? Do you see any legal declarations in this imputed righteousness here at all? No, it's transformational. One more, and then we'll move on. So this is that I may know him, page 2 of 6. He would have us comprehend something of his, of his love in giving his son to die that we might, excuse me, he would have us comprehend something of his love in giving his son to die that he might counteract evil, remove the defiling stains of sin from the workmanship of God. What is the workmanship of God? We are the workmanship of God. You know, it says in, in the Bible, it talks about that. We are his workmanship, yes. So remove the defiling stains of sin from us and reinstate the lost, elevating and ennobling the soul to its original purity through Christ's imputed righteousness. You hear that again? To transform us to be like he intended us to be in Adam and Eden. Yes. Second Corinthians 3, a function of learning here. That is... By beholding we become changed? Yes, aren't we learning... There's, there's no question there's a learning aspect to it, but there's actually something more, something we talk about, the design law. There's one of the design laws is the law of worship. 
by beholding, we become changed. And psychology, they recognize this and call it modeling. Um, little kids will co- grow up to assimilate into themselves attributes of their parents without actually being didactically taught to do so. Um, if we watch a lot of television, we assimilate some of those things into our character. So there's an aspect by beholding, fix your eyes on Christ. By beholding him, we become more and more like him. This is the design and how we're built. Yes, Lewis puts it in a figure of, of a father teaching a child how to draw. When the father first takes the child's hand at some young age, he's, the pen is in the child's hand. The father's hand is grabbing the child's hand and holding it and forming the letters. So it is the father basically forming the letters for the child. But as time goes by, this father's hand becomes less and less on the child's hand. So at some point, we'll see daycare and But I think that represents some of the Christian experience. I like that. God gives us a great deal of freedom in that particular example because at, at, at the first point in time, it's not a controlling action because I, I don't remember how he puts it, but Lewis says that there's a purpose in this teaching. There's a reason, the re, there's a reason this thing is being shown, and it's for the purpose... It's simplistic, but it's for the purpose of writing, sharing with others. But there's a greater purpose to the thing that he's doing. And so he's showing the child how to do it, but at some point he's letting the child do it. And it becomes, Mrs. White puts it in the figure of, eventually our will will be so closely aligned with his that we're actually doing our own will. Yeah, yeah no, this is exactly what Scripture teaches as well. Uh, Galatians chapter 5, talking about the fruits of the Spirit. The last fruit of the Spirit, when the Spirit finishes His work with us, is self-control or self-governance. That we have restored within, the Holy Spirit has restored within us the ability to, as you say, draw the, on our own or choose to live in harmony with God's design. That's how He built us to be. We can live uh, as the angels in heaven currently live. That's His goal. But right now, we, we're too weak to do it. So Jesus said, use the metaphor, take my yoke upon you. Because my burden is easy, my work is lighter. Pardon? My yoke yoke is easy, my burden is light. Yeah, the yoke is the yoke of love. And what does a yoke do? A yoke is not a harness. A yoke is not a bit in the mouth. A yoke is an instrument that shares the burden between two. That's what it does. It joins the two together and they share the burden. So he says, take my yoke. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. So we yoke up with Jesus and then we're not on our own. It's very much like the metaphor you're using with the hand over there. They're yoked up together doing it. Yeah, I like that. You recognize that, that what you teach is an inconvenient truth. Though. It's when you, when you can depend on somebody else to set the, the laws and the parameters of the laws, whether it's government or the institution of the church or whatever, then you have an excuse for not being as perfect as their law. Remember when, you, when this word perfect is a dangerous word. I know. It's a very dangerous word because we are so conditioned. We hear that under the, under the imposed law construct. And as soon as you hear it, almost everybody cringes. They almost always cringe. Oh, and they feel guilty and they feel inadequate and they feel inferior. But if you're in a hospital and the doctor says, you know, our goal is to make you perfectly well, to heal you perfectly. How many want to go, I only want 80% healing? <laughs> You see, under this model, we are the patient. And now think of a patient who's getting cancer treatment. And they follow all the doctor's instructions. And the cancer goes into remission. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. What does it mean cancer goes into remission? The, the cancer cells remit back to their pre-cancerous healthy state. And without the shedding of blood, without Christ's work in our lives, we, our characters cannot remit back to God's original design in Eden. Now, if, if this pre- cancer patient is taking all the treatments, doing everything they're supposed to do, and the cancer remits... They're perfectly healed. Do they get any credit for that? I did it. I worked hard. I I cured myself. No, we get no credit for this. But does the cancer patient get to be a witness to the treatment? Yes. But the cancer patient still has to participate. So there is no burden to to heal ourselves. There is a requirement to stay yoked up with the one who's healing us. You see the difference? Yes. Okay, so... Each of the quotes was applying imputed righteousness of Christ into the believer to bring healing and restoration to the person. Why? Why is it, why is it being applied this way? Because that's how reality works. The only way a doctor can heal a patient is by putting the patient in harmony 
with the laws of health, not by doing something to appease the laws of health. Oh, you've been smoking? Well, we need to go pay a a penalty to the smoking God and appease that law because you've been breaking it and then you'll be fine. No, it doesn't work that way. Or by changing and doctoring the medical records. Going to the medical records and writing a healthy report into the records doesn't do anything for the patient. This is much of what Christianity teaches, that Jesus died to pay the penalty to the law, that Jesus died so his righteousness can be put in our record books in heaven. No. His whole mission was to restore in us his perfect character of love. Here's another quote. So when we look at the cross, and there behold the suffering of the Son of God, of the infinite God, our hearts are moved to repentance. Jesus volunteered to meet the highest claims of the law. I'm going to pause right here. What does it mean, the highest claims of the law? What, and you hear that, what does the law claim? Under the imposed model, what does it claim? It claims a death penalty, it claims your life. This is what they teach, that the broken law claims your life. Under this model, what does the law claim? It claims simply that we be in harmony with it. I will, uh, we're going to jump out of this quote to define this idea of claiming the law, and then we'll come back to this quote that I started. This is... um, Desire of Ages 762. The law requires, and you all know this one, you should memorize this one. Righteousness, a righteous life, a perfect character. This man has not to give. He cannot meet the claims. One of the claims. And why does it claim it? For the same reason the law of respirations require you breathe. He cannot meet the claims of God's holy law. But Christ, coming to the earth as man, lived a holy life and developed a perfect character. These he offers as a free gift to all who receive them. His life stands for the life of men. Thus they have remission of sins that are passed through, what do you think this this person says? Through the payment of your legal debt. doesn't say that. Through the forbearance of God. More than this, Christ imbues men with the attributes of God. He builds up the human character after the similitude of the divine, a goodly fabric of spiritual strength and beauty. Thus, the very righteousness of the law is fulfilled in the believer in Christ. God can be just and the justifier of him. He can be right and the one who makes right those who trust him. Here's another one. This is out of my character, Personality 564. But the law requires that the soul itself be pure and the mind holy that the thoughts and feelings may be in accordance with the standard of love and righteousness. And every one of them, I'm, I've got several more in the lesson, every one of them says basically the same thing. I think there's a really good one I wanted to share here at the end somewhere. I'll, I'll skip those and we'll come back to our quote, quote we started on and we'll keep going forward. When we look to the cross and there behold the suffering of the Son of, of the infinite God, our hearts are moved to repentance. Jesus volunteered to meet the highest claims of the law, meaning he came to develop a perfect human character that none of us could do. That he might be, so what purpose, why did he do it? That he might be the justifier. What does justifier mean? Healer's good, writer is good. Remember, when you justify the margins on your Word document, what are you doing? You're setting things in line. You're putting things out of harmony and order. You're setting things right. So he came to do this for us to set the human species right in heart, in mind, in character with God's design, back in harmony with God's own character so that we are at one. So he prays in John 17, Father, I pray that they will be one as you and I are one, me and you, you and them, uh, and all of us together, united, one, set right again. Atonement, at one meant, being at one with God. Keep going. So he might be the justifier. Did somebody say something? No. He might be the justifier of all who believe on him. We look to the cross. I'm going to ask you to define what this says. Tell me what this means. We look to the cross and see in Jesus a fully satisfied and reconciled God. We look to the cross and see a fully satisfied and reconciled God. Okay. How many to under the imposed model? How, what would this mean? God is satisfied. Why? Yes. Yes. 
He was bloodthirsty. He was angry. He was wrathful. His law has been broken. His, his nature has been offended by our wicked rebellion. And at the cross, he vented that wrath out on his son oh, and was satisfied. Yes, you see, this, this is, yes, exactly. This is, this is pagan. This is, not, this is not true Christianity. But this is what, after the change of the law, when Constantine converted, this is what has become nominal Christianity across all denominations. It's not true. If your child was dying of cancer, what is it that satisfies you? The cancer going into remission. That satisfies the parent. I'm satisfied. God is satisfied because in Christ, love expelled any infection of sin from the humanity. Christ became sin, though he knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. We have a perfect human specimen in the, in the God-man, Jesus Christ. He perfected the species human. God is satisfied, and because of that, in Christ, the human species is reconciled back at harmony and one with God. This is satisfaction. I am satisfied. They are perfect as I intended them to be now. In Jesus Christ. Jesus is, and so the next sentence, Jesus is righteousness. Absolutely. What, what fullness is expressed in these words? And when we can say individually, the Lord is my righteousness, then we may indeed rejoice for the atoning sacrifice through faith brings peace and comfort and hope to the trembling soul weighed down beneath the sense of guilt. The law of God, as we said earlier, is the detector of sin. The Ten Commandments, the detector, the diagnostic instrument, the MRI of the soul exposes defects. But if you go to an MRI and you find a tumor in your lung, does the MRI fix it? The Ten Commandments don't fix a thing. They simply point out the defect. Exactly what Paul taught was added so that sin might abound, he said in Romans. And as the sinner is drawn to the dying Christ, he sees the grievous character of sin and and repents and lays hold on the remedy, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's, of course, John the Baptist, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Do you remember the quotes we quoted in here in the past where under this penal model that Jesus died in order to take away the wrath of God is what many people teach. That's not what John the Baptist taught. Jesus came as the Lamb of God to take away our sin, to remove it from us. And so under the penal model, sin isn't being removed from us, it's being removed from records. Under the design model, through Jesus Christ, sinful, rebellious, fearful, self-centeredness is being removed from our very hearts, and we have a new heart and right spirit, reborn in the inner man. We come to love God and, and others more than self. One more paragraph here. We feel deeply thankful that some of our brethren are making an application of the truth in their own souls through which new hopes and joys are sure to find place in the heart. A deeper Christian experience is greatly needed. The promises are sure and steadfast forever. May the Son of Righteousness send his bright beams into the chambers of the mind and into the soul temple that the mist of doubt and uncertainty may be dispelled. I don't like that kind of expression. The truth might come in, dispel confusion, and bring you a sense of peace. Then, then may the soul, all warm with the love of God, in earnestness and power, preach Christ and him crucified. Such preaching will not be in vain, but that as, it was in, as it was when Christ, the great teacher, was upon the earth, many will be astonished and charmed, and hearts will be melted and subdued as they contemplate the matchless love, his matchless love. As the Savior is lifted up before the people, they will see his humiliation, his self-denial, his self-sacrifice, his goodness, his tender compassion, his suffering to save fallen man, and will realize, get your mind around these last few sentences, what will they realize? That the atonement of Christ was not the cause of God's love, but the result of that love. Amen. You see, so much, so much of Christianity has Jesus up in heaven pleading, my blood, Father, my blood. Some, some large church has not only Jesus, but Mary and all the saints up there pleading with God because he really has to be persuaded and convinced. Most of Protestant Christianity just has Jesus pleading to the Father for us. Jesus died because God loved the world. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Jesus did not die to influence God in any way. And the last sentence of the Saturday Review and Herald, September 20, 1890, the last sentence, says the channel had to be made whereby the love of God should be recognized by man and flow into the sinner's heart in perfect harmony with truth and justice. This is healing. This is restoration. This is design law. Do you see where the impact is being made? If you think about it this way, 
when Adam sinned in Eden, did God get changed in any way? When Adam sinned in Eden, did God's law get changed in any way? When Adam sinned in Eden, did Adam and Eve get changed in some way? Then however you describe it, does it not make sense that Christ's mission was not to do anything to the law or do anything to his father, but necessarily had to do something in humanity? That's where the action, that's where the effect had to be made in order for reconciliation and that woman to occur. Yes. Do you think part of the confusion is that sometimes we don't really grasp that once Adam and Eve changed, at that moment, everything in them, about them, about their, their reality changed and they could never do anything to get back to where they were on their own? That God had to do something? Sometimes it seems like maybe... We think that we can do so. It's, we I don't know. Love. I haven't seen, well, I hear where you're going with that, and I think some people fall into that system of works, and, and that's historically been true. But theologically, most theologians have rejected that idea that we can work our way and that we can't do anything to get ourselves back in harmony. On an intellectual level, I think we do, but on, an, on some level, I don't know. It's like we all feel like we can love. I don't know. I know many people who don't feel like they can love or feel like they've ever been loved. Yes, but I think we feel like we understand the definition of it. Or I don't think so. <laughs> My practice. Well, I, I understand that we can't, but is there in, in us some kind of ego that says, oh, Yes, self-sufficiency, absolutely, absolutely. There's huge self-sufficiency, absolutely. It's part of the infection, for sure. Yes, no question about it. And this is what, where a lot of these legal models do come from, because we're trying to create our own remedy rather than trusting the remedy he's provided. We don't really, really, really want to believe it's as good as what he said. Our, our standards are too low. I was going to ask, this question of definition of love has been in my mind for a few minutes here, um, because uh, I'm not sure what you what you're defining love as, but for me, there seem to be at least two qualities. One is an emotional thing where I feel something. And there's another quality to it where it's an action where I do something. Uh, Paul tells us to, husbands, love your wife as, as Christ loved the church. Well, Sacrificing Christ, yourself for him, for her. Exactly. Yeah. Now, Christ might feel an affection, metaphorically or realistically, for, for the church itself. He may have an emotional feeling or attachment to the church. But I think that command was the command of action, which is what you, what you said, sacrifice yourself. This is hard for me as a husband to, to internalize. Is Yeah, I can feel warm and fuzzy about my wife, and I love her very much in that emotional sense. But there are things that, and I don't mean to say legalism, but there are things that I am to do and, and, and ways in which I am to serve her that, that are beyond this emotional touchy-feely thing, which goes back to our friend before saying things about, oh, I feel this way about someone, or I feel this, and this must be love. And I, I just... I'm really glad you brought this up, because um, in, in this class, we define love not as an emotion, even though it can have emotions attached to it, but as a design parameter upon which life is constructed to operate. The Bible says God is. It doesn't say God is power, even though he's all-powerful. It doesn't say God is knowledge, even though he's all-knowing. It doesn't say God is forgiveness, even though he's forgiving. All these other attributes of God's character are all expressions of his true character, God is love. And the Bible functionally describes this in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is not self-seeking. That's a negative. Expressed negatively. Switch it into a positive expression. If love does not seek self, then love does seek others. Love is outward moving. Love is giving. Love is beneficent. Love is seeking the best interests of others. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. This is how we know what love is, that Christ gave his life for us. We ought to give our lives for each other. Um, greater love is no man that he give his life for a friend. This is the principle of giving, and it's built right into the fabric of nature. We gave the example of respiration already. Every breath you take, you give away carbon dioxide. Plants give back oxygen to you. And we, go, we have many, many more examples in nature, I don't have time to go in today, where this is actually the design protocol upon which life is built. Any any deviation from the design, whether you tie a plastic bag over your head, whether a body of water stops flowing out of the circle, it stagnates everything and it dies. If it doesn't give, the, the, the body of water that receives water from the Jordan doesn't give. It's called the Dead Sea. See, any break in the design 
This is what the Old Testament sanctuary service was meant to teach. They confessed sins on the head of the animal, and then the sinner cut the circulation. The life is in the blood, and it just circled, it just circled, it just circled. And that's in, in, in Ezekiel chapter 10, when he sees God's throne in vision, vis, uh, a, a, a image of, dis, of um, a representation of God's government, the throne representing government, it's resting on something. What's it resting on? The rotating wheel inside the rotating wheel. So functionally, love in this class is God's character of love, which is the principle of selfless giving, which is a design protocol upon which all life is built to operate. That's what love is. So thanks for asking that question. If we jump into Monday's lesson, we're just getting into Monday now. Jump into Monday's lesson, second paragraph. It says, um, Only someone who knows the law very well is qualified to judge whether or not it has been broken. Lawyers study for many years before taking bar exams, which test the readiness to begin their practice. The scribes at the time of Jesus, many of whom were Pharisees, diligently studied also, and not only the Mosaic laws, but also the accumulated legal traditions. The fact that Jesus was, uh, the fact that Jesus did not agree with many of those traditions resulted in serious conflict with the leaders. But as one who gave those laws, he was uniquely qualified to explain what they what they mean, and assess whether or not they have been transgressed. So when he comes again, his reward is with him to give all according to their works. Question. How do you like the, what do you think that means? Does this sound, what kind of law does this sound like it's describing? Yeah, I think they're missing the point. It's kind of like, I, I disagree with some of the ways you've interpreted these imposed laws. Maybe he's just disagreeing with the whole system. Exactly. But you notice how this, the, the lesson writers and lesson authors have clearly, I think, tipped the, their, their hand to let us know that they view this law through the imposed law model. That's why they're using this analogy. I would have written it this way. And you can have the same idea written under the design model. You can write it this way. Only the creator, the designer, the one who actually constructed life is capable of identifying and fixing deviations from the design. I mean, that's really the better way to say it, I think. And that's the truth. This other thing, you have to study the law, you have to know where the breaks in the law are, the only one who's actually given the rules really knows what it meant and the intent of the law. And, and, then there you go. and so when it comes to judgment, we have this view that God is going to sit up there and he's going to make judgments. Is Christ, first off, capable of judging correctly? Of course he is. Of course he is. But John eight fifteen and 16, Jesus speaking, he said, you judge by human standards, I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, you know, the if is the operative word there, if. That means he's not. But if I do, my, judge, my decisions are right because I'm not alone. I stand with my father. And then in Matthew, he goes on to talk about a tree, make a tree good and his fruit, fruit will be good and so forth. And so on. And he goes, by your words, will you, you will be acquitted. And by your words, you will be condemned. Matthew 12, 34 through 38. What's being described again is that natural law, the condition of the, of the actual being the condition of heart actually determines the outcome. So if you want a couple of biblical examples of God's judgments, here's two. Hosea 4.17, Ephraim is joined to his idols, leave him alone. What's the judgment there? Of the condition of Ephraim's heart. Or Revelation 22.11, about the end of time and the people at the end. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. He which is filthy, let him be filthy still. He which is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. What is the judgment? Simply an acknowledgement of the reality of the condition of your heart. And what determines ultimately at the end what heart you will have? And what determines that? Yes, it's you, but what determines that? I'm going to suggest Revelation chapter 14. Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. Be in awe of God. Be amazed with him and reveal him in your character. Glorify him in the way you live because the hour in which he is being judged has come. People are making a decision. Is like just like Malachi says at the end of time, the prophet Elijah must come again. What did Elijah do back then? He called the people to decide. Is God like Baal? Then worship him. If God like Yahweh, then worship him. And at the end of time, that same declaration. Is God like this? Then worship him. If God is like this, then worship him. The hour for people to decide which way it is has come. And the way you decide which way God is will ultimately determine whether you trust him or not whether you open the heart to him or not, whether you invite him in or not, whether you partake of Jesus Christ or not. See, if you view him as a dictator, then you go through that whole legal model and get legal security in heaven while no transformation of character comes. But if you come back and worship him who made the heavens, the earth, and the sea, and all that in them is, the designer, then you trust him and you open him up your heart 
And you say, as David did, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are our creator, our designer, and your character is love. And that while we were born in sin and conceived in iniquity, you sent Jesus to do that which we could never do, to restore the species human back into perfection, back into harmony with your design. And now, through the work of the Spirit, we'll take all that Christ has achieved and make it known to us. We ask that your Spirit be poured out, transforming and renewing and writing the law upon our hearts and minds that we will be like you and we might witness you in this world, help dispel the distortions that keep so many in a cloud of of misunderstanding that you might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.